Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Could we talk about your book Ambition and really why you decided to write it? Well, I decided to write it because I, as well as being a church leader myself, I've been around church leaders for many years. I'm married to a vicar, parish priest, and I've been involved with training ordinands for the last 12 years and training people for leadership. And just really excited about what I see, in particular with the younger generation that's coming through. So at at Trinity College in Bristol, where I worked, a lot of our ordinands are under 30, and they're kind of the... um, because we're worth it generation and they think they can do anything and change the world and they've just not got some of the same hang-ups that perhaps my generation has got and so they're really enthusiastic really ambitious but um, I also see the effect that that can have over a lifetime of ministry and whilst you know, I absolutely wanted to bless that passion and that drive. I just wanted to ask, what are some of the questions that we need to look out for? What are some of the checks and balances that we need when we're talking about church growth, uh, when we're talking about successful leadership? I mean, you're right that some of the um, theories from the secular um, management sphere have really come into the church. And I think that's, that's good. You know, there's a lot that we can learn from leaders who are on the face of it outside the church but I think I just wanted to put all that through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of the cross particularly and say well as a Christian leader what does success look like does it look like bums on pews does it look like um, growing your church as big as your neighbor's church Um, what happens if that doesn't happen you know what happens if uh, your church declines or it doesn't grow as quickly as the um you know, the, the kind of big church websites tell you that it should do, um, then how do you live well, well with that? So it was some of those sorts of things that I was wrestling with. And the title, I mean, ambition, clergy in particular, I think, can feel awkward about whether they should be ambitious. What's your view on ambition? Is it right to go in, say, to ministry thinking I'd like to rise through the ranks and, you know, assume high office in the church? Well, you see there, it depends what you mean by ambition. So even in those words, rising through the ranks and seeking high office, that that's one kind of ambition. And I think that's the kind of ambition that we most naturally think of, really. So if you look at the cover of my book, it's got the word ambition, and I deliberately wanted to call it that word, but it's printed upside down, kind of from bottom to top. So the whole idea of the book is to take an upside down look at ambition and deliberately to use that word, because I don't think we use it in the church very much, perhaps rightly so, but there's a lot of talk of ambition in the secular world. You know, ambition, I think, is not so much a dirty word outside the church. So how do we kind of reclaim and redeem that word? And one of the things I look at in the book is what ambition really means. And it, it literally just comes from the word to walk in Latin, ambulare, to walk, ambition. I think we can think of ambition as just having that sense of forward movement. I mean, not necessarily even upward movement, but moving forward, wanting to change things, wanting to be ambitious for the gospel, if you like. And so I really wanted to to redeem the word and to make it, I talk about it being a bit like a swear word in Christian circles. And, you know, we talk about vocation, but it's not very nice to talk about ambition. And so I just wanted to to take the lid off some of that, really, and look at what we mean by ambition. Not necessarily status, in fact, probably not status. Yes, I mean, the, the sort of subheading to the book is what Jesus said about power, success and counting stuff. I mean, could you just give a flavour of what you're arguing that 
what, what Jesus' position was with regards to, to those things. I asked the, the question, actually, was Jesus ambitious? And that almost seems like a very wrong question to be asking. But I think when you look at it, I think Jesus was ambitious, if you see ambition as wanting to change the world. You know, he was um, passionate about doing the will of his father. He was a kind of no holds barred uh, leader. He really went for it. And he didn't always do that in the way that people wanted him to do. So, um, you know, when he was kind of supposedly successful and um, fed 5,000 people with one boy's packed lunch. He didn't stay around to take the adulation from that. He ran away up a mountain to be alone with his father. And when he started to get some feedback that his teaching was a bit difficult and people didn't really like it, he didn't modify it in response to customer feedback. You know, he kept on with his way of speaking, his way of being. And then just looking at the cross, really, which in the history of humankind is the most, in inverted commas, successful thing that has ever happened. Um, it looked very much like failure. So I think when we look at Jesus, you know, there is this sense of drive, there is this sense of ambition, but it's really not in the way that we would see it in a worldly sense. I spend quite a bit of time in the book looking at the Beatitudes, which is Jesus' description of what it means to be successful, only he calls it blessed um, in his kingdom. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they probably wouldn't be the list of things that you and I would list if we were kind of listing successful things. They're completely the opposite of that. But Jesus says, look, this is what it looks like to be blessed. This is what it looks like to flourish in my kingdom. So I think Jesus had a kind of back to front view of what ambition and success looks like. That's really helpful for an ambitious Christian leader to focus on. So that's that's what I try and do really in the book. And we get a lot of um, messages, I guess, from from bishops and from the, the National Church about church growth. Yeah. There sometimes seems to be anxiety about attendance statistics. And we've got the Renewal and Reform Programme and, we, and there's, a, there's a conscious strategy to sort of turn around decline. Could, could that lead to some anxiety, do you think, among clergy thinking, well, I need to sort of perform? My bishop, say, is going to be looking at why my stats aren't as good as the next parish. Definitely. That, I mean, that's one of the, re the real reasons I wrote the book, really. is, um, And it's not to say that we shouldn't be going for growth. You know, I think the renewal and reform agenda is completely right. And we do need to, you know, get off our backsides and, and tell people about the gospel and grow the church in many ways, in numbers, in discipleship, in um, depth of community engagement, in all of those ways. So really what I'm not trying to do is to rubbish all of that and to say well we should just sit at home with our feet up you know I think we should be ambitious to grow the church but at the same time we do have to think quite carefully I think about what we do with numbers and how we measure stuff and how we count stuff and what we count you know you, you tend to measure and value the stuff you count and so I suppose I'm just opening up the question are we measuring the right things um, is it all about numbers but are the are there other ways of looking at growth, um, particularly around growth in discipleship? In the book, I've got sort of four good reasons for counting things and four bad reasons for counting things. And the good reasons tend to come out of God's concern for people. You know, God in the Bible quite often orders that people are counted, especially in Exodus. But then he gets very cross with David when he counts his armies. So, you know, that there is this kind of sense of, well, God sometimes thinks counting is a good thing and sometimes not. And what we need to look at, I guess, is the motivation for that counting. 
So there are bad reasons for counting things and there are good reasons for counting things. You know, we want to see people come into the kingdom one by one by one by one by one. And that might need, mean that we need to count them. Statistics can show us where we are and, and where we need to go. But I, I think it's just taking a step back and looking at why we're doing this. And is it out of anxiety? Um, is it out of a desire to be better than the church down the road? Um, is it because we're afraid that the Church of England might cease to exist in 10 years' time? Or is it because we want to see the kingdom of God grow? So it's just trying to, to sort of peel off the layers of some of that. I mean, it seems with church growth, sometimes in some parts of the country, there's a lot of um, people coming and going from areas. Where I live in North London, people move out because they're priced out of the area. So to, to grow as a church, you almost have to grow to stay the same number because there's so much churn. I mean, do, do you think there's enough understanding of those dynamics in, in when, when the church talks about church growth? I think there's, there is a tendency to compare ourselves with others. So I'm a bishop in Cumbria, which is one of the most rural dioceses in the Church of England. And a lot of our churches are very small and they exist in very small villages. You know, the, a local village church is never going to be 200 big um, because, oh, I mean, it would be great if it was because that would be the whole village coming to church. So I think part of the problem comes when different churches compare themselves. You know, if a small village in Cumbria compares itself with a, a large suburban church in London, then it's not going to come off very well. But if it's about looking at the integrity of the place, if it's about looking being authentic for the context you're in, um, then that's a different matter. And I think even small churches, you, you know, should should expect to grow. Um, but how that happens and, and why that happens will be very different from other churches. So I think for church leaders particularly, it can be very tempting to kind of compare ourselves with the person down the road um, and to come off worse. And I think what I'm doing in the book is just to call people back to that relationship with God, with the audience of one, as John Wimber used to put it, and not to compare ourselves sort of falsely with the person down the road. So, yeah, I mean, numbers are tricky and statistics are tricky. There, there are people with much bigger brains than me who are very good at statistics. Um, but I think I'm just trying to look at the theology of all that and to, to call us back to basics. We were running an extract last week um, from your book. We've titled Good Leaders Know the Art of Successful Failure. It seems paradoxical. Could you say a bit about what you're arguing that particular part of the book about failure and success? Well, I think I'm really arguing that, especially in the Christian gospel, failure and success are very close bedfellows. So if you look at the cross, for instance, that really looked like failure, and yet it was the most successful thing ever. And that Christian leaders shouldn't be afraid of failure. Um, sometimes failure can lead to the greatest growth and the greatest success if we learn from it. I am arguing that there are different kinds of failure. I don't think it's good enough just to say, hey, just fail and it'll all be fine. You know, some failure is is has tragic consequences and um, you can't just argue that, well, we learned from it, so that was okay. Um, so I think it is looking at what kind of failure, you know, are we sort of falling forwards? Are we learning from um, mistakes that we make and putting that learning into practice? Um, in which case that can be a very successful failure. So, um, yeah, something around that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm interested in what you said at the start of the interview about um, the ordinands who you were training at Trinity Bristol, many of whom were sort of under 30. How do you think they've kind of grown up to cope with failure? Is there a difference to gen older generations in how they, uh, in terms of resilience or, or how they see failure? It's an interesting question. I, I think probably the younger generation, they are slightly better at failure. I mean, I think the younger generations are better at um, reflection, actually, you know, that the whole sort of focus on um, 
who I am, thinking about who I am, particularly maybe coming out of a, an increased focus on mental health and um, just being aware of some of those issues. Perhaps there is a greater willingness to say, sometimes I'm not okay and sometimes I need the help of others um, and not the sort of, well, I'm just going to tough it out kind of resilience, but the sort of resilience that bounces back um, in respect of the blows that life inevitably um, fires at you. So, yes, I mean, I wonder, the younger generation is typically called the snowflake generation, aren't they? They're meant to be sort of, um, you know, very easy to to knock off course. But I wouldn't say that that was the experience of the younger ordinance that I came across. Many of them were were really resilient in the good way, um, really passionate. Um, obviously, you know, each generation has got its different issues, but I'm really excited to see some of the younger leaders who are, are coming through and their greater thoughtfulness, actually, than, than some of the, the leaders in my generation. Can I just ask a little bit more about some of the, say, someone like um, Dean of Christchurch, Martin Percy, has been a sort of vocal, I mean, I would say critic of the renewal and reform strategy and, and what he sees as the importing of secular management theory into the church. I think you you do dialogue with him in the book. I've just wondered what perhaps some of your um, your response would be to some of those criticisms that in importing secular management theory, we're sort of losing the very gospel. How, how do you combine the two and, and maintain the integrity of of the gospel. I, I think Martin Percy actually has has a really good point. Uh, he he spoke out a few years ago about some of the anxiety that the renewal and reform um, movement can place on church leaders and, and clergy. And he, he was kind of worrying out loud, really, that um, the drive for success, the drive for numbers can have a real effect on the the internal well-being of leaders and I, I think he's absolutely right you know I think if we don't think about what we're doing if we don't reflect on how we sit well with these things then that is likely to be true I don't think the answer is to say well we don't take anything out of secular management theory because I, I think there's a lot I mean God God is throughout his world and it, it doesn't only speak to Christians I think so there is some good stuff that is coming out of leadership theory and actually sometimes some of the leadership theory stuff that we read is a little bit ahead of the church in the way that it's thinking about um, organisational health, um, thinking about the health of employees. Um, and, and actually, they're, they're not a million miles away. I mean, some of the some of the talk at the moment in what makes a successful leader in the secular sphere really focuses on the need for humility. Um, I think it's Jim Collins talks about humility being really effective as a leadership disposition because it leads the, the leader to say, well, I don't know everything and I need others to help me make the full picture. Um, so humility is a really important value for the leader. Well, Christians have, have been talking about humility for years. You know, Jesus talks about whoever humbles themselves um, will be, a, he doesn't say this, but successful leader. I, I don't think it's a case of saying, well, on one side are secular management theories and on the other side is the Christian gospel. I think the two can speak to and inform each other. Um, we just need to check ourselves because not everything that comes out of secular management is good. So it's a matter of saying, well, I'm going to put this through the crucible of the cross and uh, see what comes out and take what's good. You know, as the Bible says, test everything, discern what is good. Um, so it's something of that, I guess, that I'm trying to do. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive.
go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.